All right. Here we go. Five seconds and then we're going to pray. The clock is going to strike. Well, it's a little bit fast. It's two minutes fast. I don't know. Two more minutes. No, that's okay. That's okay. We'll end two minutes early then. All right. Here we go. Let's say a prayer. Lord God, you are our God. We earnestly seek you. Our souls thirst for you and our flesh faints for you. And so we look upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. Therefore, we will praise you. We will bless you as long as we live. Our souls cling to you. Uphold us by your right hand. Be our help in all our time of trouble. And remember us in all our need. In your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. How's it going? Good. Uh, I was disappointed. I couldn't find any good artwork to illustrate. I, so, and then I got desperate. And I, you know, there's a 1985 movie featuring Richard Gere as King David. You know, you know this movie? I've, I, th- I think there's a reason that I don't know about it. it, I, don't think it I think that it was probably not very good. <laughs> but then I thought to myself, we should probably have a movie night and give it a shot. That would be, that'd be really interesting. There's lots of embellishment. Um, I was looking, I was trying to see whether they had, a, they had any scenes in the movie from, that, that we're going to be covering today. And I, I, couldn't get any, I couldn't get any on YouTube. But um, maybe we'll, we'll watch some clips of that sometime. Um, but part of the reason, I was thinking about the reason for the lack of artwork. It may be that... Um, this is really something for us to talk about. These episodes in this part of 1 Samuel where David is being pursued by Saul, these episodes, um, it's a little bit hard to tell exactly what they mean. Like, what, why, you know, is this just connecting material that gets us from point A to point B, or is there more substance to it? Is there more for us to learn about what's going on? Okay, um, before we do any of that, though, do you have any questions? That's nice. Thanks, Carol. Do you have any questions? That's totally fine. <laughs> While you're up, Carol, <laughs> uh, do, do you have any questions? Any, you know, I had this experience with the high schoolers last week. I knew that they were um, learning about evolution in school, and I knew that they had questions about it, but when I asked the high schoolers, when I say, what are your questions, they just sit there and look at me like this. And so then when I said, what are they teaching you about evolution? All of a sudden, the kids are like, oh, yeah, I have questions about that. So, but here's the thing. I don't know what they're teaching you in school. So um, I don't know what your questions are. Do you have any questions that we've got going on so far in 1 Samuel? You comfortable with where we are? Okay. Where are we? So good. We're going to start 1 Samuel 21 today. Then that's a good way to start. What's the backdrop? How did we get here? What has recently happened in 1 Samuel? Yeah, he hates a friendship. Yeah, which uh, so chapter twenty um, really lays that out for us, right? And what's the character of their friendship? What's unique about this? What? Why is that such an important thing? That one would die for the other. Yeah, right, right. And not just and not just at the at the in the extreme at the end of his life, but Jonathan is even dying for David now. Without without losing his life, he's dying to himself, right? He's giving up what belongs to him by rights. He's um, putting, he's, he is uh, fulfilling what Jesus says, you know, whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father, mother, brother, sister, and family cannot follow me. And this is kind of what Jonathan is doing to follow David, right? He is um, choosing sides um, and uh, choosing against the one who's unrighteous 
but the one who has this claim on him, his father. Good. What else? What else do you know about that friendship, or what else is interesting? They made a covenant. They made a covenant. Yeah, this is really a formal friendship. Yeah, they swore to each other. Yeah. Um, that's really a, a powerful thing. Um, these promises are not to be taken lightly. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. So uh, here's the thing that happens next. David, so at the end of chapter 20, um, Jonathan says to him, go in peace. We have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between you and me, between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And David keeps that promise, um, even after Jonathan is dead. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Okay, then chapter 21 begins, David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And this really starts a period of wilderness, wilderness wandering for David or it's, it's central to his wilderness wandering. And I wanted to think about that in the context of um, other wilderness wanderings that happen in the Bible. This shouldn't be too hard. What are some other examples of wilderness wandering in the Bible? Yeah, I know it's one of those questions where it's like, it's too obvious, okay? Go ahead and say it anyways. Israel, Israel coming out of Egypt. Okay, so after the Exodus, Israel um, is on the way to the Promised Land, right? And in the meantime... They are in the wilderness. So here's the wilderness. Good. Any other examples? Jesus. Jesus in the wilderness. And that's when he's being tempted. Now, these two stories are not um, incidentally related. They are closely related. So when Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, he is doing what Israel could not do, failed to do. Right? How does that work? What does Jesus do that Israel failed to do? Yeah, Jan, or Nancy. He resisted the temptations. Yeah, he resisted the temptations. Okay, good. And, he, and, and be, you can be even more specific. What kinds of temptations did he resist? Holly. Uh, well, like the people were grumbling with the water. Yeah. They were grumbling with the food. Yeah. And those are the things that Satan said. You know, just... Yeah, right. Yeah, so, so Jesus, unlike the people of Israel, trusts that God is going to be the one who provides food for him and doesn't, doesn't um, look in other places. Yeah, Krista. And they are, they are looking for other gods. Yeah, right. They, they, they follow after other gods. Can you think of the specific instances where this happens with Israel? The golden calf, right? They bow down, and so they come out of Egypt. This is just, I mean, it's... You know this story so well, but it's so startling. It's good to be reminded of how it goes. They, they've been led out of Egypt, and they're going to receive God's law. And uh, Moses is away, and they build the golden calf. And what does Aaron say about the golden calf? It just popped up. Yeah, so, when, so that's right. So when, when Moses comes down and says, what did you do? Uh, Aaron starts, I mean, Aaron makes some, makes some excuses. Yeah, I don't I didn't know what would happen when I put that gold into that mold. Yeah, right. Okay, but before that, what does he say? Before that, what does he say to the people of Israel? Yeah, and even more specific than that. These are the, here's your God who brought you out of Egypt. Uh, which is, I mean, that, that, that they are capable of that is startling. Um, and what it then puts into contrast is when Jesus who uh, is presented with the opportunity to bow down and worship Satan in order to receive the kingdoms of this world. Um, Is that how it goes? Is that the... 
if you bow down and worship me, all, all of this is mine, I will give it to you, right? He resists. He, he knows who his God is. Yeah. So the other one is that when they got to the border of the promised land and sent the spies in, 10 of the 12 said, oh, no, we can't go in there. There's giants in that land. That's right. I trust in the fact that God was going to be with them. Yeah, so they were afraid. They were afraid of their enemies. Um, and Jesus, quite unafraid, right? Quite unafraid. Good. Other wilderness stories in the Bible. Can you think of any? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in the wilderness, right? Um, good. Elijah. Yeah. How about Elijah? What do you remember about Elijah being in the wilderness? The ravens. Yeah, that's right. Why did he have to go into the wilderness? Yeah, he had said some unkind things to the, to the king and queen, and so they were after him. And, um, and he's, there he is by the, by the brook, and he's trusting in God for provision of food and water, right? His food and drink. Um, so you have this thematic thing, and it's really uh, an interesting setup then for what comes next when we, when we read about David. Um, these stories, this, this lends some weight to the kinds, of, the kinds of things that happen. Yeah, Carol. That's good. Yeah, way to go. I like that. Tell, tell us more about Hagar. What, what? She was basically Right. Yep. She was banished and um, despairing, right? And God sends an angel to take care of her. Let me see if I can find that real quick here. That's a good one. I hadn't thought of that. Um, God protects Hagar and Ishmael, chapter 21, Genesis 21. Uh, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of the bow shot. For she said, let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Just kidding. Yeah, okay. Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife from him for him from the land of Egypt. So, although things don't go great for Ishmael in the course of history, here in this moment, Hagar trusts God's provision, right? Um, she is yet another example of that. Good, good. Yeah, Holly. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Trusting that God give them some place to live. Right. Right, and and it's um so it's one thing for Naomi to go back home, but Ruth has no claim to anything there. She's, I mean, she's a foreigner, right? She's a Moabitess. Um, and so it's only by, she says to, what does she say to Naomi? She says, I will go with you and your God will be my guy, right? So she puts her trust in God. And I mean, that, that, that notion of being cast out either by misfortune or by, because you've got enemies. And even when your enemies are God's people, um, when, you, when you've been cast out into the wilderness, the question is always, um, are you going to despair or are you going to trust in God to provide for you? Um, and this is, so this is all in the background. Because here, of course, David um, is in a full-on crisis mode, right? So uh, it's kind of hard to, for us to, get, to gain a good perspective on 
um, just how serious this is, right? So he, ha- he knows that he's anointed king. He's going to be the king of Israel. Um, and he has uh, made an enemy of the one who is, you know, the one who holds the throne presently, the one who is anointed by God presently. And he has uh, no hope in himself. He's like, he, he, he cannot, comp- cannot accomplish this on his own. He has to trust in God to do what God has promised for him. And he cannot see when it's going to happen. He has no idea. All he, all he knows is that he's going to put one foot in front of him and, and protect his life and do what is faithful. Um, good, okay. Any, any other examples? Yeah, Marilyn. I don't know if Abraham was in the wilderness or not, but certainly leaving his land that he knew and then he became a soldier and he never really that's right. Yeah, and that story gets picked up in uh, in the New Testament, especially by the writer to the Hebrews, as this this cosmic picture of what life is like for you now in the church, right? So it is the same story. Abraham was hoping for a better land, a land promised to him by God, one that he he couldn't he didn't know where he was going and he didn't know what it was going to be like. All he knew was that God had had promised it to him. In the same way, this is the picture of the church. This is the picture of the faithful, right? You really are in a desert place. You are in a wilderness in this world. Um, and that's what, I mean, one of the things that I think um, is, is often most disconcerting is when we don't think that we're in a wilderness, when we think that we are actually in the promised land, right? No, we're not there yet. And so in the meantime, um, we feel our hunger and our thirst. This is what Jesus talks about, right? Hunger and thirsting for righteousness. There's a famine of God's word in, in this world. And we hunger and thirst for his righteousness, and we trust in him for his provision. Good. Okay. Let's read a little bit here. Now, uh, there's a couple things I want to do. I want to keep things in context. This is one of the reasons why these chapters are, I love these chapters, is because we talked about this a little bit last time I was with you. Um, some of David's psalms are written specifically to the, the stories that would take place here. So we'll, we'll, get, we'll look at them just a little bit. First of all, uh, I read this earlier, but listen to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. And I want you to hear the contrast between what David says about his wilderness wandering and, say, for instance, how the people of Israel reacted to their wandering in the wilderness. This is a short one. Just, uh, just listen to what David says. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So just in hearing it, did you notice... Sorry, I have to get a cup of coffee here. Did you notice anything that's uh, different or contrasting with how Israel talks when they're in the wilderness? Anything stand out to you? My soul will be satisfied with fat and food. Yeah, right. So he's, he has incredible confidence in God's provision. But go back to the beginning of the psalm. What is it that he's hungry and thirsty for? God. God, yeah. He's not thinking, first of all, about his own belly. 
which is, you know, as soon as the people of Israel begin to think about their own bellies, that's when they go off the rails. Instead of seeing that their hunger and thirst first ought to be for God's righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you, right? Um, so David, from the get-go, says what, what he's hungering and thirsting for. And then, Marilyn, you're absolutely right. This is one of the most beautiful things about the way David writes the Psalms, and this is why the Psalms are the prayer book of the church, because David expresses faith, confidence in God's provision even before it has happened, and he sa- but he says it as though it has already happened. It's incredible. Um, you can't muster that up on your own. This is why the words are so helpful for you. What else? Anything else stand out to you? That's right. Yeah. We hear that this Sunday in the lesson that comes after the Palm Sunday procession in John 12. Jesus is, um, the, the, some Greeks come to see Jesus and he says, uh, first a grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die and then it bears much fruit. And then he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world has it for eternal life. Um, And this is exactly what David is expressing, right? You are better than life. You are better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life. Good. Okay. Yeah, Barb. Yeah, that's that's a great a great connection. Yeah. His soul was satisfied. Yeah. That's right. Good. Okay. Maybe that was a free Yeah, well uh, there is a connection to the song. I think there's another psalm where where um thirst comes up, but this there's a strong connection there. I think there's also we talked about this, I think I don't remember when we talked about this, but I think there's also a connection to when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and she says, and he asks her for something to drink, and she says, um, why are you talking to me? And then he says to her, if you, had, if you knew who was asking you to drink, you would have asked him, right? So when Jesus is on the cross and says, I thirst, it's kind of like it's coming, it's coming full circle. Here he is saying on the cross that he thirsts, and what he wants from us is that we come to him and ask him to satisfy our thirst, right? Um, and this is why the whole story, this is why Holy Week is, takes up time in the church because really you have to go through each step of the process. You have to see Jesus betrayed and scourged and uh, ridiculed and mocked and raised on the cross and breathing his last and despairing of his father's uh, presence. And then, um, then you have the resurrection. All of those things come together and it, it takes time. It takes time to do it. Um, good. Okay, now let's read First Samuel. You ready? Okay, First Samuel 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to David to meet him, came to meet David trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. 
And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Okay, so let's just pause there. Why is Ahimelech trembling when David comes to meet him? What do you think? Oh, you, okay, now that's interesting. So he has, he has respect for David because he knows that he's God's anointed. Okay, any other, any other ideas? Yeah, Nancy. Yeah, I mean, it was quite open that Saul threw spears at David, right? Yeah, um, I think about, think, do you remember um, when Samuel goes to Bethlehem to anoint David? How the people of Bethlehem react when, when Samuel comes? What do they say? <laughs> yeah, have you, have, you come in pe- have you come for peace or what are you doing here, <laughs> right? Um, and, and so that nobody knows. And this comes up again later in, what is it, 25 with Abigail and Nabal. Nabal knows that there's something going on between Saul and David, and he's not going to pick sides. He's just going to wait and see how this plays out, right? And there's a sense of that here with Ahimelech, too. He's like, I don't, you know, you're both God's anointed, or I know that there's some sort of a rift going on here. He knows that David, I mean, everybody knows that David has been doing all of these marvelous things, right? Later, we're going to hear the Philistines know that David has been doing all of these marvelous things. So Ahimelech is nervous, but David says enough to assuage Ahimelech. Marilyn, he is lying, yes. How does that make you feel? <laughs> Lying to the priest. It doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah. So, so. We're all human. No, okay. <laughs> I'm going to resist that answer. <laughs> um, why does he lie? What do you think? Why does he lie? To protect him. To protect the priest. Yeah, what do we call, what do you call that? There's a technical term for this. Plausible deniability. Yeah. So when Saul comes to Ahimelech, Ahimelech can say, David told me he was on an expedition for you, right? I'm, I just, I, w- I thought I was doing my job. Well, in a twisted way, David was. Yeah, that's true. So now this gets to a really interesting um, notion about David's character. And we have, to, we have to hold in contrast here, as throughout the whole story, David and Saul. So David tells this lie. And we are always, like, when we talk about this in high school, <laughs> I'm so wary of ever saying that lying is okay because as soon as you have, are given license, what do, you, do not use your freedom as an opportunity to sin, Paul says, right? But that's exactly what our inclination is, right? But here David, who is a man after God's own heart, is sincere. He actually is concerned about doing the right thing, and this is the best way he can think to accomplish it. And, he, and, he is, and, and although Saul hasn't sent him on an expedition, he knows what the right thing for the kingdom is, what the right thing is for God's glory, for his life, for Saul's sake, right? He knows that it's not good for him to be around Saul, right? This is all, he, he is carefully, delicately navigating this treacherous path of doing, doing the right thing when, when, like, all the odds are against him, right? Aaron, you had your hand up. Well, I was yeah, I think that, that that could well be it. Yep. Yeah. 
Saul, Saul has turned vicious, right? So, if he... If, bad idea. That's right. Yep, absolutely. David might be just trying to save his own skin, and he doesn't trust God to do it, so he does that. Oh, boy. Oh. Them's fighting words, Marilyn. <laughs> Yeah, so um, here's, a, here's one of the interesting... The Bible doesn't say It doesn't. So um, that's, a, we, that's a, a theory we would have to entertain, that David is just trying to save his own skin, which... It's so true. Then things would not have worked out. Maybe. So here, think about the difference between David and Saul. So, I'm just thinking of, you know, is it with your false prophets? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. A true yeah. Here's how you test what a, whether a prophet is true or not. If things, if what he says comes to pass, then you know you've got a true prophet. If David reigns on the throne established for him by God, then he did. He was righteous. Um, he certainly wasn't righteous in everything that he did, even at this point. Much less later. Okay. But we're still. Ent- let's keep entertaining this hypothesis, Holly. Um, I, I have to disagree because. I- Right. That is very well said. He knows that God is on his side, and so he can ask for the bread of presence. Think about the contrast between something that Saul, anything that Saul has done. Can you think of a parallel story from Saul, Saul's experiences? Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So he swore, he swore an oath, and and did the exact opposite of what David is doing here, right? So he swore an oath for his own purposes and then stuck to that oath because, by golly, I swore an oath about not feeding the people. Good. Uh, Krista, go ahead. Because I think David was in a, uh, in a certain um, uh, position, the army, what he had, they were hungry. He was responsible for them. That's right. Yeah. So it would have been a different story if David had shown up by himself and was just trying to get his own bread. That may have been a different story. But, but keep going here. Keep thinking about um, episodes from Saul's life so far. Are there other examples where Saul has done something that appears to be similar? Yeah, right. Why did he do that? Yes, right. So he did it because he didn't trust the command that was given to him, right? He had this direct, this direct command from Samuel do this, he says, no, I don't, I don't trust you, right? And, and, and so juxtapose that with what you said, Holly, that um, he, he, he knows that God is for him. David believes that God is for him, and so he can enter confidently to, to receive this bread, okay? It's not unlike, so I find this to be really fascinating and really important, um, and really important for understanding how faith and righteousness works, so think about the story of Cain and Abel. What's the difference between Cain and Abel? Their motives. What did you say, Holly? I said a right sacrifice. Let's look at this real quick. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Yeah. What makes for a right offering? A pure heart. Yeah. 
Your in- intent is related there, right? Sincere faith. What, what, what God says through Samuel, I desire more than burnt offerings, more than all burnt offerings, I desire obedience, right? That you trust me and do what I say. So look at this. Um, verses, let's just start up. Chapter 4, verse 1. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now at face value, why does God regard Abel's offering and not Cain's? It seems maybe in the lines that Cain just gave God something, whatever he had. Okay, and now this is such an interesting, because that is instinctive to say, well, they gave different offerings, right? It says explicitly that Abel gave the firstborn of his flock, and Cain just gave something of the fruit of the ground, right? And so we supply that something of the fruit of the ground. God would have had regard for Abel's sacrifice and not for Cain's, even if Cain had given the best, the very first fruits. Why? What is it that makes that gives that has got that leads God to give regard to a sacrifice. What's in his heart? Yeah, faith, right? So so it's not explicit. It's not in text. You can't see it. The only way you can see it is by learning that God had regard for Abel's sacrifice and not for Cain's. This is the the it, the fascinating thing. I mean, the Pharisees are a prime case of this, right? They offer great sacrifices. They keep the Sabbath better than anybody else. They follow the letter of the law, and they insist that other people do it as well. But they are faithless. They don't trust in God. And so all of their, um, all of their good works are filth, useless. They're, not, they're a stench to God, right? Um, and and that's, that's a really hard thing because uh, what is the problem with faith as like the measure of God's regard for you? What is the problem with faith? When we're reading these stories, for instance... That's a really strange question, I know. I'll tell you what the problem with faith is. You can't see it. You can't see it or measure it. That's right. So you know faith by its fruits, but sometimes it's really hard to tell. And at some, sometimes a faithful person may do exactly the same thing as an unfaithful person. And the faithful person's actions are, re- are regarded and, by God, are received by God, and the unfaithful person's are not. Okay? So this takes us back then to the point that, that Holly made about how, God, how David trusts God. He knows that God is for him, and so he is free. David is free to eat the, to eat the showbread when, when Ahimelech gives it to him because he knows that God is for him. And what is he, what is he valuing? What is he placing um, ahead of even obedience to the ceremonial law? What is he valuing more than obedience to the ceremonial law here? Yeah, loving his, that's right, promoting life, the preservation of life. They're starving. They're hungry. They need this, they need to eat, right? There is no other bread there. And like says, we've got nothing but this bread. Jesus takes this story up in the Gospels. This is really important stuff. He takes this story up in the Gospels. Turn with me. Let's do this. We're not going to, I don't know why I think I'm going to. It's Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verses 1 through 
14. Okay, so Jesus, we talked about this when we did Mark. We talked about the, the, how the, the Pharisees were after Jesus about the Sabbath, and they wanted him to, the, the, their measure for whether or not somebody was a true prophet or a faithful Israelite was whether or not he kept all of the, the regulations. Yeah, and not just, not just I mean, the, the Sabbath regulation, the, the Sabbath as it appears in the Torah, the Sabbath as God gives it through Moses, is not the same as what the rabbinical tradition says the Sabbath is. So, you know, they have all of these different ways that you cannot work, all of these things that consist of, that, that, are, that are work and violate the Sabbath. None of that is in God's law. That's the traditions of men. What's the reason for the Sabbath? Think about Luther. What's the reason for the Sabbath? To rest. Yeah, to rest and hear God's word, right? To rest and receive good things from God. It's not to um, avoid rubbing the heads of the grain when you're hungry, right? It's not to be pure by avoiding certain kinds of work. It's so that you can be sanctified by God and his, and his word. Okay, so listen to what happens in Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. This sounds just like 1 Samuel. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." So this is, this is, again, directly related to the question of faith. Because what Jesus is revealing is he's not, he's not like making judgments about whether or not David did something right. That's actually a secondary question for Jesus here. He says it was not lawful for him to eat, right? He says it was not lawful. What's he pointing out by bringing this example before the Pharisees, though? What's he pointing out to them or to the people around them? So they're saying, they're saying of his disciples, look, they shouldn't be doing that. Okay? They shouldn't be plucking the grains of head and eating the, the heads of grain and eating them. And Jesus says, Well, yeah, what do you think about David then? Right? Okay? So he's pointing out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, right? They are totally fine with what David did. They're totally fine with the priests who offer sacrifices on the Sabbath. Yeah, working, eating, um, doing those things that violate their own regulations. They're fine with them doing that, but they're not fine with the disciples doing it. So he's pointing out their hypocrisy, their insincerity. They're not actually concerned about whether or not the disciples are doing the right thing. They are faithless. They're trying to catch Jesus. Um, they're, the, the, intents of their heart, the intent of their heart is corrupt. So Jesus is pointing that out, and that is directly related to faith. This is, again, why David can go into the sanctuary and eat the showbread because his motives are sincere, right? He's got the spirit of God. Holly. Yeah, that's right. And, and that, 
lack of, so there's, there's two ways, there's, those are two different things, shame and guilt, right? So God holds them guiltless because they're doing what he commanded them to do. And at base level, what has he commanded David to do? To love, to love his enemies, to love God, to love his neighbors, right? He's commanded David to do that. David's doing that, okay? So God's holding him guiltless, principally because David is faithful. David trusts in God. But David is without shame. The priests are without shame, um, which, is, which will be something imposed on them from the outside, right? But they know, David knows that it's God who judges him righteous. It's not, it's not what you or I think about him. It doesn't matter to him, right? It's God who's going to judge him righteous. Holly. So the mercy part. Yeah, I, so... Uh, so this, the better than sacrifices that you might offer to show mercy, right? You tithe dill and cumin and mint, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Love. Love for the poor. Love for your enemies. Um, they oppress widows and the fatherless, right? So for the, in the case of the Pharisees, it's very easy to see, right? They're, all of these things that were the intent of God's law. Why, why do you tithe? It's so that the work of the sanctuary can be carried on, and so that. And why do you leave stuff at the end of the edge of the field so that the poor can eat? Right. This. What, the, the, I think that it's so helpful to think about. You know, the reason for all of God's regulations in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant was only ever to teach the people about love that comes from their hearts. Right. So God establishes these these rules. He's, Paul talks about them as a as a guardian. Right a pedagogue, a teacher, to teach them about the weightier matters of the law. Now, the Pharisees and people by nature, because we're all legalists by nature, um, take these, these trivial things and make them the whole thing, right? So we say, look, if I can do this, then I've kept the law. Um, uh, I was reading something that Philip Melanchthon wrote just earlier, and he has this great, he has this great um, commentary about the um, relationship between the moral law Okay, so things that are universal and according to natural law versus the ceremonial law, stuff that God instituted specifically for Israel, like keeping the Sabbath and, um, you know, the Day of Atonement and all that. He says, look, it's, it will be, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world to keep the ceremonial law. Those are very specific. You could even make a list and you check them off. That's a very easy thing to do. Right? So there's no, there's no sense in even talking about whether it's good for you to keep the ceremonial law. The, the whole reason for the ceremonial law is to point to what's inside of your heart. Right? It's to keep you in the bounds so that you're thinking about the sacrifices that God truly cares about. Right? This is why when Jesus comes, it, it is a crucial moment in history because he takes all of that that was before, which had been forgotten and neglected and perverted, and he fulfills it. Right? So he shows us what... what the people of Israel, and we, again, we all by nature would fail to see, is that what he's after is sacrifices of a pure heart, a contrite spirit, a broken and pure heart. Um, those are the sacrifices he desires. And from, the reason why he desires those is because from a broken heart, which has been resurrected by him, can come forth love, right? Love doesn't come from your natural heart. It doesn't. Um, it's 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 the opposite, uh, and so it's only by God's work, God's Spirit coming to you, um, that you that you can love, that you can keep His law. I'm going far afield now. I don't know if I answered your question, Holly. But 
Okay. I desire mercy and not sacrifices. He wants you to keep the weightier matters of the law, right? The, the sacrifices are to point you to the weightier matters of the law. Yeah. Good. Other questions? Let's do a little bit more then. Verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And that's that. He's just there. Okay. <laughs> then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley at Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Okay. Um, what are your reactions? <laughs> it's a smart move. That's right. So we have this glimpse of David's um, shrewdness, right? He's, he's, making, he's making these wise choices that are required for a king to be faithful in his, in his job as king. Uh, listen to, um, turn to Psalm 34. This is the psalm that David writes when he's in Gath, pretending to be insane. I, I just love the fact that we, have, <laughs> that we have these psalms that pertain to these specific moments in his life. Um, because the story, of course, is from a third-person omniscient view, or not omniscient view. It's a third-person view. We, get, we have some omniscience, but we don't get to see what he's thinking um, as he would articulate it. So here's Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name forever. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So you get, you get a sense of, you know, the commentary in 1 Samuel was that he came to Gath and he was afraid of Achish, right? So here he has come to this place and all of a sudden he's, he finds himself in a, in a, a deadly bind, right? He's, uh, he's terrified. Um, and he expresses that here in this psalm. Uh, he answers me and delivers me from all my fears, okay? Verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. 
The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So, it's, I mean, it, I think that the thing that's most marvelous to me, and that we would do well to take to heart, is that uh, he is in despair. He was in, in desperate straits, but he trusted in God, and he acted in a certain way, just like he did when he fought Goliath, right? He did something. David did something strategic that gave him success. But where does he, afterwards, what does he say about it? It's the Lord who rescued him, right? And then he, this bit about um, teaching the youth is so, is so profound, right? Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, right? He's going to tell this story to his children so that they can hear how God rescues his faithful. How, although the righteous are afflicted on every side, although their enemies seem to succeed, uh, his, uh, God's ears are towards the cry of the righteous, um, and he delivers them from all their trouble. And then this bit in the middle, middle chunk there, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, verses 13 and 14, turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Okay, so it's, you know, he's, he lied to Ahimelech, but it's not deceit, uh, that is aiming at his own good, right? It's not deceit that's aiming to hurt another. It's, that was, um, you know, a justified lie. He was, preser- he was preserving life. So why does he say this then? You know, he um, is talking about doing good, turning away from evil and doing good, seeking peace and pursuing it, which, is, which he is doing in his life. And what is his reward for that? What is his reward right now for turning away from evil and doing good? What's the reward that he has? And by reward, I mean what... It's not, a, it's not a great reward. So the, the Lord is with him, but what is he? He's suffering right now, right? On account of his righteousness, on account of the fact that God has, has chosen him, that he's done what was given to him, he did, he's done good and turned from evil, his reward is suffering. It's, it's persecution, right? And yet, this is the most marvelous thing, and yet he commends this, in this section, to, to the children. Come, O children, listen to me. Do what I'm doing. Even though I'm suffering for it, do it anyways. Um, maybe you remember long ago, we, did, we talked about Tobit, and this part of that story stuck out to me, right? Tobit um, did all these righteous things, buried the dead, took care of strangers, and was scorned for it by his fellow citizens, and then one day a bird came and went to the bathroom in his eyes and he was blind, right? And he suffered for his righteousness, right? And then he sends Tobias, his son, off on this journey. And what does he say to him? He doesn't say, um, yeah, my life didn't really turn out the way I expected it to. Um, doing all of these good things, all of this righteous stuff was kind of a waste. He said, do exactly what I've done, right? And, and don't, look at my, don't look at what I'm suffering right now as your reward. The Lord, the Lord rewards the righteous, um, what you see is not what you're going to get. That's pretty spectacular. Um, and that, that's something that we have to hear and remind ourselves and, and remind others of all the time, is that the, the, um, 
the sufferings of the righteous are not the end of the story. And um, you should be righteous anyways. Because God sees what's done in secret. God rewards um, those who are faithful to him. What kind of questions do you have? Carol. It's not really a question, but I was thinking, you're asking what the reward was. He's not dead. That's true. Yes. If he were dead, he wouldn't be unable to sing the praises of the Lord to the little kids. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, although he may wish he were dead at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> No, but you're right. Yeah. Rose-colored glasses is sort of, you know, the realization that. Yeah. When I think of the time of old people, why am I still here? Yeah. Because you can, you can pray for everybody, or, or you can still be a witness in the hospital. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's always that is always the answer. Is um, your your reward is God is putting you to use, right? Think about the alternative, that God just lays you to the side and forgets about you. <laughs> no, he's, he's still got work for you. Yeah, that's good. Okay. We'll leave chapter 22 for Pastor Nelson next week. Um, remember these things, though. Remember that little snippet about Doeg the Edomite. Sorry, not next week. Next week's Good Friday. Don't come back for Bible study then, the following week. But remember that Doeg the Edomite was there. And remember that David David's effort to give Ahimelech plausible deniability and see how that works out, okay? Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks a lot.